Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. I wonder if you know that rhyme. I wonder if you've been setting off fireworks celebrating Guy Fawkes Night. Um, maybe not. I don't know what your position is on royalty and leadership and kings and queens and all these kind of things. I wonder if there are plenty of different political views and views on uh, the royal family within our church congregation, but that's not really our subject today. We are kind of thinking about that kind of thing, but stepping back a little bit and asking the question, what do you do when the government is bad and times are really hard? When the future is foggy and you're not really sure what it holds and you wish you could have leaders of competence and wisdom who could guide you safely through, but you're just not really sure what they'll do or what they'll be like. So times are hard, leaders are bad, what do we do? Well, that's not just our situation today. It's probably been the situation in every generation in human history. When times are hard and leaders are bad, what do you do? Well, we're going to read a story, an ancient, ancient story about a man called Joseph. Back in Genesis 41, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph, I don't know if you remember that stage show, listened through to those songs recently, or... Um, or just remember Sunday school lessons about Joseph. Well, his Technicolor Dreamcoat is long gone by the time the story we're about to read happens. About 10 years, maybe longer, uh, before this, Joseph, with his lovely coat, favoured by his father, had been dragged by his brothers far, far away from home in a very desolate, quiet place. Dragged by his brothers, thrown naked into that pit. They'd taken his coat, ripped it to shreds, dipped it in blood, taken it home, and claimed that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. What in fact had happened was they'd sold him into slavery. They left him in the pit for a while, ignored his screams for help, and then he'd been sold into slavery. He'd gone into a pit, naked, and was raised up again into Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the captain of the guard, a very, very important man in Egypt. And Joseph had become a very important man in Potiphar's house. His character, his wisdom, the fact that God was with him had been evident to everybody around him and he'd been raised up, lifted up to the highest position in Potiphar's household. And then he'd been torn down again. You can read that story a couple of chapters before in chapter 39, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. But in the end, after that story, he's thrown into another pit, into prison, stripped again of his robe and left there and forgotten for years. Eventually, a couple of guys are thrown into the prison with him and they have two really bad dreams and they don't know what they mean. So Joseph in the morning, with God's help, interprets those dreams. One of the men is lifted up, raised up and restored to his place in the palace. The other one is taken down and executed. And the one who goes back to the palace, Joseph pleads with him as he's leaving the prison. Remember me. Remember you, me when you come back to the kingdom. But he's forgotten. And so Joseph, in the beginning of our story, has been in prison, languishing for another two years, forgotten by the servant, unknown by the king, seemingly perhaps even forgotten by God. What on earth is he doing far, far away from home, years and years away from seeing his father? Squashed down, pressed into the dust, in chains again. Where is Joseph's life going to go? Who knows? The future's hazy. Times are hard, and leaders, well, who knows what they're going to do. But one night, the king has a dream. So let me read you Genesis 41, and we'll read it and pause at different points, and I'll explain the story as we go. Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, since Joseph had been in prison, Pharaoh had a dream. 
He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those in the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up again. So they're kind of Salvador Dali, freakish cows, eat up these healthy cows. Cows would usually be a bit like hippos, apparently, in the Nile. So hot outside, they would sink themselves comfortably down into the mud, down into the water of the Nile. But these ones coming up are eaten by the seven others coming up. What on earth does it mean? be a strange thing to wake up after a dream like that. But he falls asleep again, verse 5, and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were grown on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy, full ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. Bit of a strange picture. One of those dreamy ones that you find it difficult to explain in the morning. How did corn eat other ears of corn? I don't know what that looks like. But Pharaoh, in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Silence in the court. All these people who are usually chirping away, all of the pundits who usually have something to say about anything, all of a sudden they have nothing to say. They have no idea. And the king is troubled. That's the first point we're going to start with. The troubled king. The troubled king. Well, what should you do for a king like this, who's facing a future that's very, very difficult? Well, you should pray for him. I wonder if you've ever noticed uh, when people are elected president or elected prime minister, after not a very long period of time, they seem to age quickly. It's as if age goes on far forward and they grey very quickly. The stress of it, the lack of sleep, the difficulty of leading, under pressure especially, can be really hard on people. Heavy lies the head that wears the crown. So the saying goes, so how do Christians pray or respond to leaders who, even if they're not very good, face real burdens, burdens to lead, the burdens to make decisions, the burdens to try and work out what to do in a situation where nobody knows what to do. Well, what our leaders need from us most of all, are our prayers. However you feel about them politically, whatever kind of job they're doing, they need our prayers. That's a very Christian thing to do, to pray for leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to people who were living under the Roman rulers, people like Nero at the time, who was, you can look him up if you don't know about him already, a horrific man, doing horrendous things to Christians. And what does he say? What does he want for churches to do? The first thing he says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge that prayers be made for all people, especially for leaders, for kings, and all those in authority. Go and read it, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We should pray for our leaders. What should we do in our communities? Well, Jeremiah chapter 29, there's another one to write down and have a read of it later on, if you like. Let me give you a taste of it now. There's a letter written to people, the people of Israel, when they were dragged off into exile under the brutal king Nebuchadnezzar in the exile, later on in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, writes a letter to them. What should you do when the future is hazy, times are hard, and the leaders really are bad? What should you do? Should you start an um, underground campaign to blow up the leadership? 
Should you try and vote them out of office? Should you just disconnect and go and live in some desert community? What on earth do you do when you're dragged into exile under the brutal, brutal dictatorship of King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. One thing we've got to do is remember God is in control, but what does he tell us to do? He says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters and wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So those people dragged into exile were not supposed to become freedom fighters or just disconnect, run away and go and live in the desert. They're supposed to live in that community and do what they could to pray for its prosperity and to work and to have children, to plant gardens and build houses and just live like normal godly people and bless the city around us. So what do we do when we have kings and queens and politicians and prime ministers and MPs who are troubled and going through difficult times and even if they're particularly bad people, we pray for them. That's what we should do. And here's a troubled king. Let's carry on with our story. Nobody knows what to do. Well, we pray for those people. But then the chief cupbearer said to the pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Imagine how embarrassed he would be. Joseph asked him as he was getting out of prison, remember me. And that's the one thing he's forgotten to do. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, with us, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. He, we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Can you imagine how embarrassed, embarrassed that cupbearer would be? You can feel him as the Pharaoh is telling the dream to all the wise magicians and the pundits and they all just go completely silent. And he's there embarrassed, trying not to make eye contact with anybody, feeling the blush make his face hot as he remembers what he'd forgotten for two years. And he speaks up. So the first thing we have is a troubled king. We've got to pray, pray for him. Second thing, we've got, we've got a forgetful servant who has to speak up. Don't stay silent. What would be the, the worst thing to do? What could be worse than forgetting your friend in prison? The, the friend who'd helped you out of prison. What would be worse than forgetting him? Where would be not speaking up when you remembered him? Wouldn't it? What's the one worst thing that this servant could do once he remembers all about Joseph is to keep it silent, to hush it up. And what he does is he embarrasses himself, lays it all out there in front of the king and says, I should have told you this two years ago. I should have remembered, but I forgot. And isn't that such a common thing for us? We make our resolutions when times are hard. When you're away on camp and you have that great experience, you promise that you're never going to do that again. You promise you're going to tell all of your friends about Jesus. You promise and we make our promises when times are hard or when special things happen. And then as soon as it's over, you're home from camp or you're through that sickness, out of that situation, and we forget all about it. This is such a human thing, isn't it? That this man does. He forgets all about his friend in prison until just the right moment. In the third year, he remembers Joseph. 
And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he'd shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now you've got to notice, can't go into this too much, but that's a resurrection. See, it's on the third year, like the third day. Out he comes from this prison where he's been locked up for two years. And in the third year, he's almost born again. You see, he's shaved completely in the Egyptian fashion, clothed with new clothes. His old ones have been ripped away, ripped to shreds and dunked in blood. But now he's got new clothes, a new life. He's being raised up. And what happens? Well, how does he save the world through this resurrection? Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can, sorry, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. That's one word in Hebrew. I cannot do it. It's like, not me. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a real strong way of putting it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. He's almost a John the Baptist there, isn't he? He's saying, I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie the sandals of the God who can do this. I'll serve you, but you've got to remember that I'm a servant. So we've heard about the forgetful servant who has to speak up. We've heard about the troubled king. We've got to pray for him. And this is the wise and discerning servant, the forgotten wise saviour. That's who Joseph is in this story. He's the forgotten wise saviour who points people to God. He says, I can't do it, but God will do it. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, this is what happened. And he tells him the dreams again. We'll pick it up later on. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless ears of corn scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Like two witnesses, right? Two dreams. It's definitely going to happen. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. Discerning and wise man. And put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come up upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't that an amazing thing for a pagan thing to say? Can we find someone like this man that Joseph is describing, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Because only God could give wisdom like this, could give knowledge about the future, could help us know what to do to save many lives. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I know who, who it's going to be. Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you discerning and wise. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Isn't that an amazing turnaround? From down in the prison, massive long beard, um, dirty grubby hair, probably full of lice and um, fleas, or at least you can imagine him like that. 
in chains, in gloomy darkness, thinking he's been forgotten and left for dead. His life is over. And then all of a sudden, he's shaved and washed and clothed and raised up, and not just freed from prison, but raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, of the great king, made prime minister of the whole of the land, lifted up to be the one who's, who's given all authority, all authority at Pharaoh's right hand to save many lives. And that's what Joseph does. That's what happens as the story goes on. Um, he's energetic. He doesn't just know what to do, but he puts it into action. He's energetic in doing something about the famine, in storing up enough food over those bountiful seven years to give not just the Egyptians, but actually the whole of the region. They talk about it as if it's the whole world, the whole of the region that's suffering with famine have enough for the next seven years of famine. And so right at the end of the chapter, we'll skip a little bit. You can read it later on. Joseph uh, is basically rejoicing. He gets married. He has some children and he's recognizing, he's looking to God and he's got no bitterness in his heart against his brothers, against the situation, against the poor uh, wine cupbearer who forgot him in prison. He's got no bitterness in his heart at all. He just rejoices in God uh, for being good to him and rescuing him. And then verse 53 at the end of the chapter says, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all other lands, but in the whole of the land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries, the nations, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. So what do you have at the beginning of the story? A man in prison, left for dead, naked, ashamed and in darkness. What do you have in the end? Somebody, a wise and discerning ruler who's raised up, clothed and feeds and saves the whole of the world. How do you save the world? How do you have anything useful to do or to say to a world where the future is uncertain, where times are hard and where rulers are bad? Well, we've learned, and I hope you've seen two things already, you can pray. That's what God calls us to do. And you can speak, even if you've forgotten, even if you've missed plenty of opportunities, whether it's to prime ministers and MPs, if you have those kind of opportunities, or to your boss, or to the people around you, to your teacher in school, to your friend down the road, whoever it is that you've forgotten, that you've missed opportunities to speak to about God. Well, forget no longer. Remember, the only thing worse than forgetting is to never do it at all. The only thing worse than forgetting is to shut your mouth when you remember, right? So we need to talk to people about, about who? About the wise and discerning saviour, the forgotten wise saviour. That's who we need to talk to people about. That's what um, the forgetful servant does in this situation. He brings the wise man, the wise saviour into the situation. And that's what I think God is calling us to do today, to pray for our leaders, Pray for those around us to speak to our leaders and speak to those around us about who? Well, about Jesus, about the one who is the wise saviour, the one who, who never said, oh, it's not me, look to God, but the one who taught people in a way that 
people had never been taught before. Do you remember in, in the New Testament, in some of the gospel stories, when Jesus is teaching people, like on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, he's teaching people and he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes a bit of the Bible or a bit of the like, kind of local teachers, but I say to you, and at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, people are just looking at each other thinking, wow, we've never seen or heard anything like this. He speaks with authority, not just quoting sources and referencing others, but he says stuff referencing and quoting himself. <laughs> He's the one who you can listen to and think, I've never heard anything like this. There's another story where Jesus says to people, do you remember that? Do you remember that story when Solomon, the great wise king of the Old Testament, was visited by the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba? She came from miles away with camel wagon loads full of gifts to come and hear Solomon's wisdom. Well, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it's in Matthew 12, one greater than Solomon is here. And he's talking about himself. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh, wisdom walking among us. And so there's a beautiful story right at the beginning of John's gospel about two friends, Philip and Nathaniel. Philip meets Jesus and he's just mesmerized, blown away by his teaching, by his miracles. And he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I think I found the Messiah. The Messiah is this guy from Nazareth called Jesus. You've got to come and meet him. And Nathaniel laughs and says, nothing can good can come from out of Nazareth. Nazareth is like the Brinaman. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, make that joke again. We always make that joke. But it's, it's the Brinaman. It's the like back of beyond, why would you ever want to go there or move there? But people do and people love it. And Jesus came from Nazareth, from a Brinaman, a kind of, kind of a town. Honours people like us from Ammonford, from, sorry, where, where do you come from again? I've never heard that. I thought a man was in Jordan, but Ammonford, where on earth is that? Jesus came from a place like, like this, where we are. And you know what Philip said to Nathaniel? Nathaniel was laughing. He's like, nothing good can come from a place like that. I'm not interested. Give me somebody from the big city. And Philip, his whole pitch, his whole argument to, to Nathaniel, his friend, is, is this. He just says, come and see. Come and see the wise saviour. That's all he's got is Jesus. So I wonder what Jesus has given you, what wisdom he's given you this week. I wonder what it is that, that he's spoken to you in the Bible or that you've heard from him in prayer or that's hit you in a song while we've been singing on a Sunday or something, some situation where God has been particularly present with you. When has he been wise and reliable and trustworthy and helped you face the future, helped you face difficult situations. When has Jesus been wise to you? Would you share that with someone this week? Would you stop being forgetful, forgetting to speak up, or being too afraid to speak up? And would you just say, come and see? Let me tell you just something a little bit, something about Jesus. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's speak up when we get the opportunity and speak particularly of the wise servant. I mean, Jesus' wisdom goes way above and beyond. It's much deeper, much more interesting than anything we could ever plan or imagine, isn't it? What is Jesus' wisdom like? Well, it's not just store up food for seven years and then give it to the world. Something even more interesting. Something you could never guess. Something that, that nobody's ever said before. All the pundits and the religions go quiet in the face of a God who is willing to die for us. That's Jesus' wisdom. That's the wisdom of God, is to go and put himself in the prison of death for three days. And then on the third day to be born out of the grave again as a new person, clothed in immortality, 
raised up to the right hand of God, one day to lead a whole world full, nations and nations full of people to salvation, to give us bread because he is the bread of life. Do you see? That's his wisdom, to die for us who are in darkness so that we could with him come out of the darkness and into the light. That's Jesus' wisdom, which goes far beyond the wisdom of Joseph. Because you see, he's the great and better Joseph. So what does Pharaoh tell the people to do when you're hungry, when you need salvation, when you're walking in darkness? To the Egyptians, Pharaoh said, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. What will we say to people? What What does God say to us today? Go to Jesus and do what he tells you. Listen to him, whatever it is. And then take that and feed it to others because he is the bread of life. He is the wise, often forgotten, but he's the wise and discerning savior. He knows you by name. He knows exactly what you need to do. He'll give you words to say what you need to say. He knows your life. He knows your situation. He knows the darkness that you're facing. He knows the haze and the fog of the future. He knows what lies through it and beyond it. And he's not a bad lady. He's the best. He's the wise one. He's the discerning one. He's the one who, who's seen the end from the beginning, who's gone into the teeth of death, broken through, and knows the way. Everybody else falls silent in the presence of Jesus. So would you come and listen to his wisdom? Would you come and hear what he has to say? And would you listen to him and follow him and go and speak his words to others? Come on, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when everything around us is confusing, when we don't really know what the future holds and when our leaders seem to have no idea what to do or where to go, Lord, that applies in so many situations, doesn't it? In our schools, in our governments, in our churches. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can trust you as our leader. Thank you that we can trust you to be wise. Thank you that we can trust you to be discerning, to know what is on the other side of history and to know how to lead us through even death and out the other side. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to die for us. That wisdom just goes beyond our understanding. Lord, we fall silent in your presence. And so we ask that you'd help us to learn humility, um, to pray, Lord, when we don't know what else to do, to speak, even though we perhaps have been silent all our lives. And Lord, we ask when the time comes for us to speak and for us to pray, that you'd help us to know what to say and to lead people to you. Amen.